Hello and welcome to the GovPod. I'm your host for this week, Nick Lloyd-Cusick. GovPod is the new podcast where a rotating panel of students at the Herdy School of Governance in Berlin discuss topics with a global impact. Today we're going to be exploring the rise of populism and nationalism in mainstream politics. Joining me are Alex, Constantine, and Omer. So why don't we go around the table and you can tell us just a little bit about yourselves before we get into it. Hi, guys. My name is Omer. I'm a Master of Public Policy student first year at Heritage School, and I've been working in international development for the past uh, quite a few years. I'm originally from Pakistan, but spent a lot of time in the States and all over the world. Hi, I'm Alex. I'm a second year urban and regional planning student from UCLA. I have spent my professional and educational career inside Los Angeles, specifically with the Latino communities and how they've been affected with the rise of populism and, and bigotry and hatred coming up again in the United States. It's becoming harder and harder for people of Latino origins to be who they really are inside Los Angeles. And it's a very interesting topic to see how this has been changing. All right, I'm, uh, I'm Consti. I'm a student of international affairs at Herdy as well. Uh, I'm originally from Germany. I grew up mostly in Beijing and China. And um, I recently moved to uh, Berlin, uh, and I lived in Bavaria before. And um, so that's, that might be something that we'll talk about today, the, the upcoming Bavarian elections and the growth of populism as well in, in Germany, unfortunately. Uh, I'm also, I didn't mention this in the beginning, I'm from, I'm from Canada. So um, I am somewhat ignorant to the, the recent developments in Bavarian politics, but I'm very curious about it. Constantine's got me interested. Um, so why don't you go ahead and tell us a bit more about what's going on yeah, so these upcoming elections will take place in about a week's time, uh, October 14th. And they have been called or they've been referred to as sort of the canary in the mine for German national elections, which are still a couple of years away. But um, still, it's, uh, you know, it just goes to show what the current mood is in the country. Um, and these elections are special or, or particular in a way because... Uh, in recent decades, Bavaria has been ruled by the CSU party, the Christian uh, Social Union Party, which is, I think it's fair to say, a uh, fairly conservative party and has always been a fairly conservative party. The interesting thing is that with the rise of the alternative for Germany in recent years, uh, in Germany and also in, in Bavaria, um, the rhetoric of the Christian uh, social union has changed, and they have certainly moved uh, further to to the right, or perhaps even to uh, populist speech to some extent. And they have focused on on issues that have uh, that were in the past couple of years typically issues of populist parties uh, within Germany, but also outside of Germany. And it's interesting to see that those tactics didn't really work out. That's really why these elections are, are so exciting because, or so interesting for the first time in, in decades, because their numbers have dropped so far. So um, what, what kind of issues were they, and you mentioned mm-hmm. populist issues, yeah. uh, you know, being raised, but not really gaining traction in mm-hmm. terms of converting them to actual votes. Um, so what kind of issues were, were floated? So um, immigration, obviously, uh, with the, um, the refugee crisis and everything following that, and of course, the rise of, of the alternative for Germany following that, 
Um, the CSU responded to that. They, for instance, um, they founded a new kind of police, a border police, specifically for Bavaria, even though there is a German border police in that area. Um, and they've been very active, and specifically some of their figureheads, so to speak, on both the national and the Bavarian level have been very active in trying to seal deals um, to return uh, asylum seekers to other countries, for instance, Italy and Austria, um, because Bavaria is one of generally the south of Germany, most um, asylum seekers, most refugees, most uh, immigrants that came during the refugee crisis and still come to Germany every day, uh, that's where they pass through. So that's really where um, the perhaps the populism has been, I wouldn't say uh, it, it's not been focused on, on that part of Germany, but it's interesting to see that a very mainstream party in that part of Germany has now adopted populist issues, populist speech to some extent. Uh, another issue is, for instance, um, security. So that was something that the Alternative for Germany really pushed for, uh, to strengthen the police and you know, keep, keep people safe on, you know, on some level. But um, that led to the uh, PAG, uh, the Polizeiaufgabengesetze in, in Bavaria, which were very controversial. Um, they are in place as of, uh, I think, a couple months now. And um, they sparked massive protests all across Bavaria. And um, the, the party didn't really acknowledge that. They, they didn't really react to that. Um, they basically said that, you know, this is essentially, these are fake news. What you're saying about um, this new law is, is not true. We're not giving the police too many rights or too many, or in, in that respect also um, infringing upon people's citizens' rights. Um, but there's been sort of a very broad coalition of more liberal, uh, left-leaning, or generally um, a very broad coalition of, of, of different groups taking part in demonstrations and protests and so on. And what we've seen then in recent weeks is, months actually, the, the CSU, the, um, the biggest party in Bavaria for decades, has dropped massively in the polls. Um, so they're now, I think, at 33%, um, and that's the worst result they've had in decades. So is that 33% uh, forecasted for the popular vote, or 33% you know, probability of winning the election in minority or majority, or what, how, what is that 33%? That's uh, 33% of the popular votes, mm. according to these polls. Um, and they would need uh, to probably to need a f to form a coalition, and mm. um, that's really the only the only option they have. So how have they been? How have they actually responded to this pressure? Have they have they even noticed any kind of change in their policies or the way they they, they address? Uh, you know, they've been they've been very defensive. So and and it sparked some um, some unrest within the party. So some of you may have heard of Horst Seehofer. Um, who is the interior minister in, in Germany at the moment. And he led the party for a long time uh, before he, he moved to national politics. And his replacement, uh, Mr. Zuda, um, has criticized him openly recently. And um, that's unusual. Uh, so it was well known that those two maybe didn't get along all that well. And that was part of the reason why Hosteofa moved to national politics um, to sort of so they could get out of each other's way. Um, but what we've seen now is that the party seems perhaps even more divided than it was before.
And this is interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm listening to you t- telling me about Bavaria, and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. noticing a lot of parallels of things happening in Canada at the sub-federal mm-hmm. level. Is there anywhere else in Germany that, that this is happening as well? Is it only in Bavaria, or are there, are there other populist kind of movements bubbling and percolating up in other, other states as well? Well, the, um, aside from the AfD, the, the alternative for Germany, which is growing pretty much everywhere, um, the, the difference is, I think, that what's special about Bavaria is that a mainstream party has adopted or has reacted so much to that by adopting um, part of perhaps the alternative for Germany's party line to some extent. And what that has caused is uh, a debate now with, with the alternative for Germany getting so big, um, a debate among conservatives in Germany whether or not uh, the uh, Christian Democrats, or as they're called in Bavaria, the Christian uh, Social Union, um, whether they should consider a coalition with far-right populists. And so far, for the most part, um, they have been very clear in saying that they would not enter in a coalition. Angela Merkel has been very clear in that, about that. But uh, especially in some parts of Eastern Germany or former Eastern Germany, the Christian Democrats have not been uh, uh, so clear on condemning uh, populist speech and also ruling out a coalition with uh, far-right populists. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is kind of reminding me of um, you know, I was looking thinking about populism and nationalism in Canada, um, which is, is is maybe not so much uh, so broadly well known across the world, uh, being a smaller country population wise. Um, but into interestingly, uh, interesting stories coming from you know at the sub-federal provincial level in, in Canada recently. So I mean, my home province of Ontario. Recently, uh, uh, the Conservatives won for the first time in 15 years. The past 15 years was heavily dominated by Liberal majority. And recently, the Conservatives won by such a huge margin um, under the, uh, the kind of populist kind of stylings of the new, new Premier's name is Doug Ford, who actually, incidentally, is the brother of Rob Ford, who you might know <laughs> yeah, yeah, as yeah. the mayor of Toronto who admitted to smoking crack cocaine while in office. Fun fact, okay. So his, his, Doug Ford is Rob Ford's brother, mm-hmm. who is now the Premier of Ontario. Um, they beat the Liberals so badly, the Liberals now only have, they went from a majority to seven seats out of 124. Wow. They've lost their official party status in the provincial government. Um, that's to me is such an incredible tectonic shift in public opinion and the Doug Ford is a populist through and through the whole I mean even when he was a city councillor the entire uh, his entire narrative and as well as his brother was to um, you know stand up against the downtown elite downtown Toronto elite um, and now in these provincial it's you know just the elite in general I guess um, and you know, stand up for the, the 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 real people of Ontario and end the gravy train they called it. And, you know, the wasteful spending, the the <laughs> the, the, the corrupt policies, things like this. Um, and that's it's proven to be. You know, it's a combination of uh, dissatisfaction with the the Liberals uh, for a number of reasons, but also this um, it's kind of awakening of, of, of populist sentiment uh, in Ontario, being very close to the states as well. Um, other independent factors, but also recently uh, in, in Quebec, this week actually, 
there was another huge upset in a similar kind of uh, similar kind of pattern. The Quebec Liberals, who were uh, in the in power for the majority of the last 15 years, the last 14 out of 15 years, were ousted um, by the uh, Coalition Avenir Quebec, uh, which CAQ for short. I'm going to stick to that because it's not French. Um, <laughs> even though you could probably barely tell it was French because my accent is so poor. But um, they, 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 they now have a majority government. Uh, and that's actually the first time that a party besides the, uh, the Parti Québécois and the, the Quebec Liberals uh, has won a provincial election since 1966. So that's, you know, it's, it's pretty stark. Ont those are the, also Ontario and Quebec are Canada's two largest provinces. Um, and you have within a year, within four months of each other, um, the parties who have been absolutely political juggernauts for the last 15 years have defined public policy, uh, have been ousted by enormous margins, by outsiders, by uh, populism and nationalism, which I think is quite startling. Uh, and in the, uh, the federal government level, uh, Justin Trudeau um, has finding fewer and fewer friends amongst the, the ministers of the provinces when he's, as he's trying to, um, uh, you know, fulfill his promises of accepting more refugees. Uh, you know, Quebec and Ontario are, uh, you know, asking for more controls and immigration. Um, as he's trying to uh, unify the country with, with uh, emissions pricing, um, not so much Quebec, but Ontario and Alberta and other provinces are really pushing back against this now, um, which I think is, is, is creating a whole new, very, very, very different um, political climate than, than anyone would have expected at the, at the beginning of the term. Uh, it's pretty much putting a lot of these really important policies in, in basically in deadlock, kicking the can down the road. So when you're talking about this uh, sort of reaction that all these states are having towards these federal policies in Canada, and specifically when it comes to immigration or emissions control, isn't how, what are the underlying reasons for, for this in the sense that wasn't there a broad-based consensus on these issues a while, like just very recently? What, what's changed in the last five or ten years um, because of the... Because what 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 I'm confused over is the heavy mandate that Trudeau and the Liberals got um, when they replaced um, the previous uh, when they replaced Harper, and so that's and it was it was it was a very very strong mandate from from all across Canada. So um, clearly he had sort of outlined these these policies. Then um, how is it that? Um, your populism on the provincial level or, or the state level um, has been able to fracture that so so rapidly and, and cause such a precipitous fall in, 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 in support for these things. That's a great question. I think it ha a lot of people are just wondering the same thing. Uh, I know, especially in, in terms of the emissions pricing, um, I think perhaps spurred on by the strength of his of his mandate, you know, by the by the the people of Canada. Um, Trudeau, a couple of years ago, uh, ruffled a lot of feathers of, of the premiers in, in terms of the way he delivered the message that there was going to be a federal plan. He basically said, um, here's what we're doing. If you don't give yourself a price on carbon, a system for taxing emissions, um, in two years, we're going to give one to you and you have that much time. And it has to meet, you know, certain standards and all this kind of stuff. Um, and uh, in, 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 uh, provinces that don't have as much access to hydroelectricity and other things or who are more economically dependent on fossil fuels, uh, they were not so receptive to this kind of strong arming. And as far as immigration uh, and in terms of the refugee crisis response especially, that's been a very visible 
you know, um, a visible case study, I guess, in immigration and people's attitudes and, and receptiveness to immigration. Um, and, and Trudeau, uh, I think he wel- he committed to welcoming at least what, 35,000 uh, Syrian refugees. Um, and Ontario in 2015, at least, was the, the, the recipient of, of, of the largest number of, of refugees in Canada, um, which I think in, it, it, they encountered a lot of problems actually successfully resettling those refugees, which, you know, isn't surprising given, given how difficult that actually is to do. Um, but I think that contributed to uh, a lot of people feeling that that wasn't the right call for their communities uh, and, and kind of uh, making them more receptive, maybe, to this more overtly, uh, you know, uh, this, this, this idea of wanting to kind of pull back a little bit on the flow of refugees um, in Canada, which, I mean, to many people, myself included, uh, is maybe a little bit surprising. It's a bit of a departure from the, the, the discourse around refugees in Canada uh, more broadly. Uh, Toronto, for, sh- for sure, is an extremely multicultural city. Uh, you know, 50% of Toronto was born outside of Canada. Speaking of the refugee crisis that's been happening throughout the world right now, so many countries have been trying to figure out a ways to avert this crisis, but again, this whole idea of keeping themselves, keeping to themselves and Every country wants to help, but nobody wants to be the one that helped or be the one that helps. I think being from Los Angeles, I live in a a bubble of the U.S. where um, Los Angeles is in California and it's the state of immigrants. There's people from all over. There's cultural hubs and ethnic communities no matter where you go in California. And we have this whole idea that the U.S. is like that everywhere. But, you know, growing up for me, I always believed that. And now with since Trump came in, I've seen this huge change of California really isn't like the rest of the U.S. And the rest of the U.S. is you know, a little different. And I don't want to say every state is the same because I know there's a lot of people out there. But the people in power, the people are the ones making their laws and making the rules aren't the ones speaking for the, the people. Um, I just read that since, well, as of April and from January to April of 2018, U.S. only accepted 11 Syrian refugees, which, I mean, it's appalling. Uh, There's so many immigrants, refugees, migrants in in California, in the United States that are undocumented, that are trying to find ways to live life, and they've really pushed the communities and pushed the economy in ways further than they should have been. But on the national side, the national policy side, they don't want to see it happen because, you know, they're not the good old Americans that that they should be, which is another BS answer or BS response that so many people from the U.S. have. But I think towards this whole idea of the declining left and the declining um, liberalism wing and rise of populism in the U.S., it's been it's been something really unique in a state in a in a state like California, where we've been pushing this whole idea of a sanctuary state, and so many cities throughout California have become sanctuary cities where we don't have to agree or we don't have to, the police don't have to give their information to the immigration police, to ICE, which, I mean, for those of you who don't know ICE, it's the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And they're <clears throat> they're basically bullies to anybody that's not white. Um, I was, I've been born and raised in the U.S. my whole life, but I'm ostracized because of the color of my skin. Um, so it's a little, and I, I mean, I'm million, there's millions of stories like mine. I've it's insane to me that the U.S. has become something like this and it's only growing bigger. But on top of that thing with ICE, with the sanctuary states, it's 
it's really funny to see how California is pushing all these ideas and, cal and wanting to accept immigrants and accept migrants, refugees, whatever name you want to call them, accept people that are looking to live somewhere that's, that they could have a future for their children because their home can't have that. And it's really, and so California is really trying to push that, but at the same time, it's kind of, um, don't say, don't tell, because it's still happening no matter where you go. There's still, ICE is still around California deporting citizens that have lived in the States their whole life. As of recently, U.S. citizens have been stripped of their citizenships if they were born, or if they were born at home in Texas in like the 1950s because there's been some um, fake birth certificates. So that some becomes, you know, anybody that was born like that is an illegal immigrant and they're being deported. So in terms of Los Angeles, you know, what, what's, what's been the, the, how has the political discourse changed at the, at the city level? So yeah, I think again, with that being in California where <clears throat> we've been really lucky to live in that bubble of California, our governor for the most part has been really supportive of fighting for its people, which are primarily immigrants all over the state. And we haven't had many national policies affect our day-to-day -day lives other than knowing they're gonna come and knowing one day the hammer's gonna strike. California's constantly being at I mean, as, as a bigger state, in a state sense, California is constantly butting heads with Trump. Our governor is constantly going, going against him with his policies. But on a city level, on a lower level, it's you see this spark that's happening. I live in southeast L.A. I live in a city called Downey. It's a very Hispanic city, and we're surrounded by very Hispanic cities where the populations are 70, 80 percent Hispanics. And... We've lived this life, hap we've lived so, I don't want to say happy, there's been the issues, but we've been able to live and live our lives, live our, have our cultures as Mexican-Americans, as anything American you are, which has always been the American dream, but slowly more and more and more people are starting to speak up and say, you know what, I don't want you here. So within LA, you know, LA works as a ton of cities, but we have this giant economy that consists of four, five different counties, and it's one massive urban area that's everyone's connected, whether they're in the same county or the same city, everyone's connected. And Los Angeles in itself is so forward thinking in what they, what they say, but in policymaking and what they do, it's all talk right now. It's all, you know, one day we're going to make housing easier for LA, which the housing issue is an issue that's been going on forever in LA. And LA will never become a city where travel is easy, where living is cheap, where living is, where, you know, being in the city is easy because there's too many homeowners at risk. But this whole populism rise, to, to swing back to what I was saying earlier, this whole populism rise has opened the gates for people to say what they want to say and be who they want to be regardless of repercussions. So we have counties like Orange County, just south of Los Angeles, that are very multicultural, multi-ethnic, but have always been viewed as upper-class white communities. And because of that, because of those few people who are in power, they, they're going against the state, they're going against the grain, and really trying to push that they're not sanctuary cities, they're not a place where you could be safe as an immigrant, which is scary when so many people of color live in those communities. I mean, I went to school in Irvine, which is in Orange County, it's in like the heart of Orange County, it's... I loved the city when I went there. It, I could talk about the city for a bit, but 
on this train. It was the safest city in the nation when I went there. Once I graduated, you started hearing more and more stories about the KKK trying to recruit on campus, about flyers being handed out at doors, about parties being shut down by people in hoods, which regardless of whether it happens once or two times, the fact that it happens in today's age is, it's appalling to me as Hispanic who came, whose family came to the U.S. and I, my, as my dad always said, I fought the fight in the 60s and the 70s so you didn't have to. And so it's really crazy that I'm still having to fight this fight as we're going on into the future. So um, when it comes to this narrative that, that's being sort of uh, promulgated by the other side, so what I'd like to do when, I, when I'm listening to these cases like these is, is to look at both sides. And that's the only way that you can really understand and come up with solutions or even diagnose the problem properly. So what, what, what in your mind is, is, is merited on, on the other side? So I know there's a lot of xenophobia, there's a lot of racism, there's a lot of nationalism and populism. But um, in order for genuine social dialogue to take place, there would need to be addressing of issues um, on the other side that are truly not based on, on bigotry, but based on, on, on real, isu- real issues. What do you think those real issues are if you were to introspect into your community? Um, what is it that can be, can be uh, sort of fixed? And then that way, when you filter everything out, all that will be left over will be pure hatred and racism, right? And, and bigotry. So what, what is it that's, that's so a real concern? I think right away I'm from... I mean, again, um, to lay this out, LA is massive. There's so many different regions and areas within the south southeast LA region. In the 50s is when it all was being incorporated into Los Angeles County, when it was all being pushed and pushed as the suburban dream from people coming home from World War II. This is southeast LA was that American suburban dream where you could have your car, have your house, work in the factory, work in in a blue collar, hard working man job which is a core, core concept of what that region was 50, 60 years ago. My hometown, Downey specifically, was home to the Apollo space program and all the manufacturing of airplanes, and um, the Apollo program was basically built it in Downey. And then when that was there, we had a ton of blue-collar workers working it. We had a lot of educated people working in the engineering side. Right next door in my neighboring city of Southgate was the home of a Firestone Tires factory, which was a massive tire factory. We had industries for manufacturing of farming equipment. We had all these types of industries in these areas. But as time went on, industries died. People kind of moved on to this world market where we're not gonna produce everything here. So people obviously lost their jobs. People were, the engineers at Boeing, at NASA, they didn't need them to work to get to space anymore because that wasn't NASA's focus. So the factories were shut down, people left, people didn't find jobs. And at the same time as that was happening, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, we had this massive in, influx of immigration. We had this massive influx of Hispanics, of people from Africa trying to readjust. We had the crack epidemic happening in the 90s that was a whole nother mess and issue to dive into. But it was these, it was this whole melting pot of people losing their jobs because industry was moving worldwide, immigration growing, people trying to readjust to what's happening with social policies in the U.S. And so with that going on, you know, the the people in power were still the same people in power. It was still 
for lack of a better word, the Christian white male. They were the ones, they were our mayors, they were our townspeople, they were our council members. Yeah, we had a few Hispanics on the council where we had a, a black mayor here or there, but it was still the Christian white male was in charge. So all of their policies, people saw, I'm the one, you know, those people are like me, so they're the ones making rules, so they're doing it for me. So when things started not going that way because we had a mass immigration of people trying to, well, we had, I mean, U.S. has a continual immigration from all over the world because it's the U.S., because everyone wants that American dream. So there's this melting pot of issues that just bubbled and bubbled and bubbled until, I mean, it's exploded multiple times. But again, right now we're at a point where these, these issues have grown to where we have more Hispanics than there are the white male. We have more people of color than, than, other, than white males. Outside of xenophobia, they see that as I can't find a job because, you know, that, that, Hispan that Mexican man is working in the, the sales job that I could have had when, I mean, he didn't even want the sales job, but it's I could have had it. So I don't, I don't think it's, I mean, there's just so much to it rather than just xenophobia. It's, it's this inbreded problem that all of these policy issues bubbled down and made life for people worse, while at the same time, people of color were coming into L.A., in mass numbers. So it's easy to, you know, correlation is not causation. It's really easy to blame the others when you're not going to say, you know, this factory shut down because Mexicans came in. It's really easy to say that and not say, you know, these factories shut down because our mayor wanted to save money. That's what I've seen, at least. Because I'd like to use that to segue into what um, I've been thinking about. And it's really more so. So it's so basically when you come to um, the, the 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 issues that the the right wing has or like that conservative people have with migration is um, is is again it could be economic or it could be cultural or it could be um, you know just plain bigotry without any sort of substantiation. But when it comes to Europe, I feel like um, again, like I said, you know, in order to properly have a a, a dialogue that can that can move towards resolution and move towards um, having some sort of harmonization you need to be able to understand both sides and when it comes to um, the conservative response in Europe um, and I'll make this argument um, just you know for the sake of providing objectivity um, so so a lot of people make the argument that okay if you have uh, let's just take the example of France and Germany if you in France you have a huge African community um, that came from uh, former French colonies in Germany you have uh, a very large Turkish and to some small extent Arab community that came as guest workers um, in, in a few decades ago and these people, um, because of the lack of policies at that time, because of perhaps lack of foresight, um, they were not integrated, and we know that well. And so the get ghettoization occurred. So somebody um, from the conservative side could say that, you know, if we have a huge mass of, of people living in this country, they are citizens of this country, but they don't even properly speak the languages, they were never fully integrated, what, what is the point of taking in more people uh, and not and still not having the system in place to integrate the additional people. So then you have a the, then you have a, a very significant social problem um, metastasizing and becoming worse. Um, so, in other words, um, it's not it's not saying it's it's not to say that immigration is is bad or it should be stopped. But it, you know it has to be 
it has to be in order for in order for the for, for again like i said before in order for um only bigoted voices to remain on on that side of the argument and everyone else being one being won over they need to see a system presented by the state a very uh, well-funded long-term system or approach or policy that that sort of allays those concerns and lets lets these lets lets these let lets these people know that um, there is a process by which we are adding everyone and we are adding them to the melting pot. We're not assimilating. We're integrating. We're providing vocational training. We're providing um, uh, cultural training, uh, language training, and all of these things, so that um, so that anybody on that side who says, "Okay, you know, you have." You have this problem, which is just becoming bigger because you have more people who are joining that pool of uh, of uh, disillusioned and and unintegrated people, would uh, would automatically be won over by the fact that he or she would be able to see a system in place uh, wherein you have integration going on, right? Real integration, so they don't have to worry about the the problem being repeated. So, so in other words, um, com- even addressing what Constantine said about Bavaria, if 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 the concerns that Bavarians have, it's clearly not economic, right? Because these people are coming. Bavaria is a very wealthy state, very well taken care of in terms of the you know, social welfare. So the concern is mostly cultural. Concern is let's let's be honest about it. Concern is the uh, attack on you know Catholic Christian values of the state uh, of Bavaria. Um, and when you con- when it comes to again, you can't convince people who are going to be bigoted regardless of the facts presented before them. But when it comes to people, for example, who are uh, abandoning the CSU and going towards the AFD, uh, bringing, those, bringing s- those people back, so, so separating um, the flock from the demagogues on the, on the far right uh, is, is, in my opinion, as simple as devoting resources to, 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 to real integration. Wherein you can convince these people that yes, there yes, there's different people coming in from all over the world, but these are people who are on track to become, are on track to having the same, if not the same value, well, the same general values as you, and the same um, sort of you know having the same language skills and everything. Um, that would be that would be a good solution because otherwise, ignoring uh, and and ignoring those voices. And saying, "Oh no, everyone who speaks against any migration is bigoted," is adding fuel to the fire because then this person feels like whatever, um, even academic or merited argument they present or, or logical argument they present, they're they're just um, sort of painted as a bigot, without you know, without with 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 a, with a wide brush. I think uh, what's as you mentioned, Bavaria is in a very good economic situation. Germany is as a whole in a very good economic situation. And the interesting thing is that uh, very recently, um, industry leaders have called for more immigration, specifically also for adopting immigration laws uh, somewhat similar similar to the to those that are in place in Canada, for instance, um, to get people into the country that are qualified and and so on. And um, at the same time, a lot of uh, refugees already have jobs, and as we know, and um, I think it, to some extent, as you say, it's it's a management issue. It's how do you manage immigration? How do you manage it well? And I think if you manage it well, and this is probably part of part of the issue at hand, 
um, that's good. If you don't manage it well, then you, of course, oh, that's water on the mills of populists. And um, so some part of the issue in Germany, I think, has been that the coordination or the management of the refugee crisis was, I guess some would say, as good as it could have been without any preparation. Um, but obviously the mistakes were made, and to some extent, I think communication just wasn't very good. And uh, I think communication was left to some extent to parties that were trying to use this crisis to their own advantage. And the thing is now in Bavaria, what we're seeing is instead of a shift in policy, like towards more integration or you know, trying to address the actual issues at hand, um, what we're seeing is that despite excellent you know, security and safety, economic prosperity and everything, uh, the CSU is moving towards the more, you know, the populist side in terms of their, their language and everything. And that's not worked out for them. That's the, dif that's the difference, I think, to some extent, to what you managed, uh, you, so you mentioned with regards to Canada. It's not working out for the CSU. Uh, they have the worst numbers in decades. And the interesting thing is, of course, they've, they've lost a lot of voters to the AFD, to right-wing populists, who, whom they were trying to emulate to some extent, um, but they've also lost a lot of voters to much more liberal, uh, left-leaning parties, um, to a lot of smaller parties. And that's what's, what I find so interesting, that this move to try and emulate, to sort of, I guess what they were trying to do is take away the issues or sort of win over voters that were lost to right-wing populists, get them back, and try to reintegrate them into sort of a more of a mainstream political group, uh, and that just didn't work out at all. They alienated um, parts of their uh, sort of more conservative or maybe even populist-leaning voters because they went to the AFD because they had more extreme positions or were probably more clear about them. They were not part of the establishment, so to speak. And so they weren't, they had not screwed up yet, you know, to put it simply. And on the other hand, they alienated people who, the moderates within their party, because they just went to a more moderate party. And so now what they're left with is this sort of middle ground that it really isn't working out for them, in terms of the numbers at least. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens after the election. If these, these polls are what we're gonna see at the ballots, then um, that'll mean that it'll be very, very difficult to form a coalition, and it, it might be a very unusual coalition for Bavaria, and that the people who came up with these strategies, with these tactics of trying to emulate populism or populist speech, or at least certain is issues of populist groups, that those tactics didn't work. They failed, they failed miserably. And that will have consequences, and I think this is a good example maybe probably doesn't apply everywhere, but it's to some extent a good example of maybe how not to deal with this issue. So maybe not to try to emulate and, and do the same thing. So, I mean, that's a, that brings up a, a really important question. I think that's something we've, we've kind of alluded to in different ways in our different kind of contexts already. But I think this is kind of a one of the, the, the nastiest parts of, of dealing with this in a liberal democracy is um, there's this basic tension of you have to let people voice their opinions. 
and if you don't let people talk, you know, share their ideas in public, and you know, gather freely and things like that, um, if you if you if you stop that, then you're stepping on the toes of your own values as a liberal democracy. So, I mean, this is kind of a, a, an open question for conversation. How do liberal democracies deal with this in a way that isn't hypocritical? Well, I think, as you say, the the worst, maybe even the worst thing to do would be to deny those groups the rights to free speech and, and so on, because that way you won't make them go away. You, you won't win anyone over. You're just going to alienate more people, and they will be less transparent about their actions. That's something that... Uh, I remember a professor, we, we, we were talking about the NPD, which is like a neo-Nazi, a very small, but it exists, a neo-Nazi party in Germany, um, which isn't very relevant these days, but they, um, they went bankrupt a couple of years ago. And the question was, um, or they, well, they're still around, but they have serious financial issues. And the question was, should the NPD be forbidden in Germany, which is possible. It happened uh, decades ago with the Communist Party. Um, should they be forbidden because they, you know, pose a threat to democracy and so on? And what he told me was, if you're going to do that, they're just going to form a new party. They're just going to move somewhere else, or they're going to move in the underground. They're going to be less transparent. You, you won't know what they're going to do. And um, in that particular example, he just said, you know what? Just let, let them go bankrupt. Let them deal with their financial issue. Well, um, no, actually, re I actually completely agree with you, Constantine, in the sense that if you push um, these people to a point where you, where they think that they're not even um, sort of you delegitimize de them institutionally, then they just go into the fringes, and yeah. then they're more dangerous. I agree that you need to have more dialogue. You need to allow like so. Yeah, the liberal values, um, the democratic values um, of, of free speech and expression need to be maintained, and these people need to be given the f all the forums that they that they um, seek for expressing their views. But at the same time, there must be there should be like this honest dialogue where the, at least the saner minds um, among, let's say, even, even well, I don't know about the MPD, that, that seems kind of yeah, far gone, but, yeah, yeah, but maybe, far, in the right? AFD, <laughs> maybe in the AFD, if you could have yeah. um, some dialogue with these people, get them, establish some axioms where you can sort of talk about it, agree on, on what common interests there are and they're, they're always I mean that's kind of like conflict resolution 101 right you mm -hmm. just sort of meet um, uh, somewhere in the middle or you find something there are always something there's always something and that can act as a confidence confidence building measure right so mm -hmm. what I was saying before um, if there if, if let's say the state can sort of indicate that it's um, maybe it, maybe the programs are in place and the performance of those programs of integration to these people then that could be a confidence-building measure. Um, moreover, when it comes to um, nationalism that is espoused by several, plenty of the leaders in, in, in these movements, you can, of course, there even you can have uh, conversations about um, legal obligations, uh, the Constitution itself, um, which, um, which, which, which can sort of be, be referred to um, and of course you have uh, a lot of, so, so for example, I don't know if the AFD has a economic policy. I don't think they do. I don't think they've, or even if they do, they haven't been able to properly outline it, which clearly indicates that 
you know, the nationalism or the populism that they're espousing is based purely on, on emotions and on fear or, or whatever. And so that is clearly something that can be outlined at least to, again, like I said, you know, I, 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 I know I'm sounding as if it, I'm, I'm sort of saying that it's divide and conquer, but it, it's not. It's more reclaiming uh, individuals who've, um, who are ascribing to these parties, for example, in Bavaria or even, even in other, other mm-hmm. provinces who are, who are, who, who've moved over to that side purely because their legitimate concerns were not addressed. And if these people can be um, brought back, um, then that would be a great way to, to sort of begin this process of, of uh, harmonization. Yeah, I think to some extent that includes or has to include um, identifying, doing your research, identify the underlying issues. And so, for instance, uh, what we've seen in Germany is that, uh, of course, you know, the biggest parties have lost a lot of voters like the uh, the Christian Democrats, um, lost a lot of voters to right wing populists. But also, interestingly, very far left leaning parties lost voters to right wing populists. Um, so two extremes on paper that are very far apart, but the the underlying issues for those people probably didn't change. And so what, what we have in Germany right now is, of course, a state where we're doing very well economically, um, but at the same time, inequality is growing. So not everyone is benefiting at the same rate or uh, to the same extent. And so that's, for instance, something that could be addressed. So at least win back the people you can win back. So the people who are not fundamentally uh, part of maybe right wing or far right wing populist groups. So here's me playing devil's advocate. So couldn't the argument be made that populism is a way for some underrepresented or marginalized or some other disadvantaged groups is a way for them to achieve a louder voice in the political discourse, are there benefits to this populism, and what are they? To speak briefly, I think I could speak a little on the U.S. situation. I think populism has helped definitely a lot of underrepresented communities. Um, I There's a lot of communities that are not filled with color in the U.S. that are feel underrepresented, um, underrepresented in this changing world of globalism and multicultural worlds no matter where you go and I there's definitely a lot of cities in the US that feel like they're being left out left behind as their core communities are dwindling and their core community and their who they are is who they are as people who they're what their culture is is disappearing because this world is changing and for them I definitely think it's a good thing because it allows them to really stick to who, who, what their culture is. But I think at the same time, it needs to be looked at as they're becoming, they're keeping onto your culture and welcoming change can come together, can change and can happen at the same time. And it doesn't need to be as far right swinging as it is happening in the US where instead of you know sticking to your culture and holding onto who you are and finding jobs for these communities where in a dying industry like all the communities in the U.S. that rely on coal, that rely on automobile manufacturing that doesn't happen in the U.S. anymore. So I think their culture can definitely be held on to and help grow and mold, 
but they're holding on to part of their culture is holding on to those industries that are no longer relevant in the growing world. So I think that's where the big line gets drawn is they need to find new ways to boom their economy outside of continuously mining the coal the coal mines that, you know, in a world that coal is becoming less and less. But again, that's clearly from a US perspective. Yeah, that's a great point. Um in I think that populist movements, of course, yes, they do um, provide that space for a lot of these sort of disenfranchised or disillusioned people to flock to and, and find as, as their um, platform to voice those concerns. But I think, and again, I, I don't want to say that, that any of these um, movements are don't deserve to have some structure by themselves, but if in my mind the solution would be then to have the political parties that the mainstream political parties to have um to expand their manifestos and to expand their uh, their um outreach by including the concerns of these people and then bring them back away from populism um and th- there 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 would be a solution where um you would have um, let's say in the United States, you would have the Republican Party um, convincing their base, the one, the the ones that voted so overwhelmingly for Trump, uh, and and the fact that he gave them, like, like Alex said, these these promises um, based on there's no based on no facts, there's no facts to support that you can bring these manufacturing jobs. So it, in, in so instead of that, if the Republicans were more honest with their um, with these constituents and tell them that it's not possible to do that, but it is possible to retrain them. It is possible for them having the House and the presidency and the Senate to fund vocational training programs. The the program in the U.S. is one of the, uh, the, the least funded and the smallest in the OECD. So give them these solutions, um, which are more realistic, and so thereby expanding their manifesto. So thereby them becoming the party that will be the pioneers of greater vocational education so that these people can be retrained um, whereas culture is concerned convince them that it's not viable anymore for them to think that uh, America is a is a pioneer Christian white Anglo-Saxon state uh, that the realities of, of, of globalization have have just changed everything you know and it's it's no longer possible for the for for homogeneity to be like that um, so it is possible. In my opinion, it's, it's just um, uh, depends on, on leaders within existing mainstream parties to take bold steps to be able to reorient themselves and the parties so that they can um, they can take these people back. I mean, for example, what happened with the Tea Party movement? The Tea Party movement came up. They were against um, these these. Um, Moves uh, by the Obama administration, which which they saw as as a, as as being you know very um, expanding state control and healthcare and all of this and and taking freedom away from from people, but that those concerns were in in time addressed, uh, whether by slowing down of um, of that unwarranted pro- uh, progress on the Democratic side or the Republicans addressing those concerns um, and doing doing sort of filibustering or whatever they did. So I think there are solutions that can be found and that, that way that you can disarm populism without pushing those people into further disillusionment. 
Um, yeah, something that we've seen in quite a lot of countries is that where populism arose, voter turnout increased. So what, you know, part of, of this populist success story that we're seeing in so many countries is, of course, you know, um, a lot of people who used to vote for the established, established parties, so to speak, uh, are now moving to another party. But also these populists are reaching a lot of people who didn't previously feel represented at all or who just perhaps weren't even interested in politics. And from a purely objective democratic standpoint, you want more people to be involved. So that's, you know, ideally that's a good thing and something that we can maybe learn from that is communicate better. Reach those people, reach the people that, populists are very good at communicating uh, to people. They, they know how to play to their base, they know how to reach people. Um, not always, you know, a lot of that is related to fake news and everything, but I think that's something, a conclusion that should be drawn from all of this is be better, communicate better, don't make those mistakes, don't leave those gaps for populists to fill them. I think one of, one of the most common themes in the populist kind of the message is that the elites are out of touch. Mm -hmm. They don't really know who you are. They don't really care about the things that you care about. And I think that that's, I mean, I, I hope that that's not actually true. Um, but I, I could definitely see how it would feel very true to a lot of people. I mean, it, it's easy to not really know what's going on in government and to not feel represented in the things you see on the news. And, and so I think that that's part of the, the populist message that I think they've got, they've got right. You know, like you were just saying, communicate better, um, be more inclusive. And I think it's not always, well, it's definitely not always easy to be inclusive in, in, in an active way, not just say anyone's welcome, but actually say things people care about and, and, and give, give voice to people's struggle and their problems and things like that. Um, and I think that that's something that uh, if you're talking about, uh, you know, ways forward uh, and, and, and trying to not to not to stop these motion movements, but to uh, to harness the energy, the higher voter turnout and things like that, to harness that in a hopefully a, a, a way that harmonizes our societies a little bit better. And, and, and you know, kind of diverts some of the energy that's going into like social unrest right now into just social action. Um, I think, it, it, like you just said, it takes, it takes more communication, more active inclusion. Just to add on to that, I think, um, again, this is this rise of populism and this rise of... I'm going to repeat that. Just to jump on that, this rise of populism in the world has definitely been a different exposure to a lot of people. It's been something not... It makes the future look very bleak and somewhat iffy for a lot of people. Um, but I think from my time, I've definitely seen this being a great awakening for a lot of younger voters, for a lot of younger people to be interested in politics, to be interested in the world and what's going on around them, rather than just being so lazy, laissez-faire and just saying, okay, whatever happens, happens, which I know definitely that's how I was for a long time. I didn't care to vote. I didn't care what was happening. I kind of just assumed everything would go well. And now that things aren't going well, I'm definitely more aware of you know what, I, I, I may only be one person, but there is something I can do and I could be a part of it, which I've seen so many people, so many of my peers, and they're definitely waking up to this world. 
And as evidence to that, a lighter-hearted story to kind of finish on here, uh, Time Magazine is reporting that uh, this past year in the States, or actually I should say this past week in the States, when they uh, had National Voter Registration Day, I think it was on the 25th of September, a record smashing number of people registered to vote in the midterm elections upcoming for November. So to give you a little bit of context of previous voter registration days, um, the last voter registration day ahead of the 2016 presidential election drew uh, just over 770,000 registrations on that day. The only other day, uh, voter registration day that was held ahead of a midterm was back in 2014, and that drew 150,000 registrations. This year's voter registration day ahead of the midterms in November drew 800,000 registrations for people to vote in the midterm elections, which I think is absolutely incredible, speaking to some of the points that were raised earlier about people feeling energized and mobilized. And, uh, you know, whether you, you know, love or hate Trump or love or hate populism, you are listening. You've, you have woken up to the world, as Alex said. And, uh, you know, people are showing up and they actually want to be part of the system now, which I think is probably the one of the, one of the things people have struggled with, you know, uh, well, at least in the States, probably everywhere, really, uh, is getting people out to vote. Even if you just just come out, just come out and vote. Um, and, uh, you know, we're seeing an incredible spike, at least as if, if the voter registration day is any kind of indicator, um, which is heartening for me anyway. So that's it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening, and thank you to Alex, Constantine, and Omer for the great discussion. This is Alex. It was great to be able to talk to you guys. This is Omer. Bye, guys. This is Consti. Thanks for tuning in, and have a nice day. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe to GovPod on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud so you don't miss an episode. Also available from GovPod is my interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist Elizabeth Colbert, where we discuss her latest book, The Sixth Extinction, and why communicating climate change is so hard. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.